Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm just going to discuss briefly Benedict Anderson's notion of imagined communities. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. You'll see videos I release every week, sometimes twice a week. You can go check out my more than 250 episodes I already have up if you're interested in that. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio on pretty much any podcast platform. If you found this on a podcast platform, you can find the video for it on YouTube if you're interested in that at all. So go check out those things. You can like, share, subscribe. That would help me out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Links for such things in the description. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guigno. Links for these things in the description. And yeah. Let's jump into this pretty important term in, across so many disciplines, that is imagined communities. Now, as you've seen, I've done episodes covering this entire text, so if you want the full experience, go listen to those or go read the book. That'll give you the full thing. If you just want more of a quick recap, this will probably do it for you. But the idea here with imagined communities is thinking about the way in which people can be bound together despite having never met each other and probably having really little in common with one another, but they can be bound together under a common national identity. So somebody in one part of the world who've never met somebody in another part of the world, suddenly when nations were starting to emerge, were clumped together into the same national category. And this wasn't just a purely imaginary event. This wasn't purely an abstract event. It had real living consequences for the people that lived there. That is, it completely transformed who they were, where they began to identify with the nation and to, to develop alliances with people who they never met before. So nations are constructed in space artificially, imaginatively. That is, the borders of any given nation are not handed down to people on earth by some god. They are instead just arbitrarily assigned in order to separate people from one another. Now what motivated Benedict Anderson to write this book was the revolutions occurring and the conflicts occurring in Indochina in the late 1970s between Vietnam, Cambodia, and China, where these countries were all undergoing some kind of a socialist, Marxist-inspired revolution, yet there were conflicts between each. And he identified that at the core of these socialist movements was a, a strong concern with nationalism and which nation was going to be the one that was going to realize this Marxist vision properly, the socialist project properly, which is ironic for him because if you read Marx, you can see that there is a move towards an international proletarian movement. It isn't about a single nation adopting Marxism overnight. Instead, it is a dialectical movement that all workers under capitalism are involved in. So this emphasis upon specific nations doing it better than others was a little bit strange for Anderson to hear. And it motivated him to ask, how did the nation come into fruition and why does it hold such a strong place in our political imagination, the possibilities for any people? Why do we filter our futures through this lens of the nation? Well, he gives a pretty long history as to how the nation was formed, and I won't go into all the detail of it here. If you want more, go check out those episodes I said. 
But there are three primary institutions that gave way or that helped to concretize the idea of nations. And these three institutions were the acts of mapping, of performing a census, and of museums. Now what they did, three separate acts, three separate institutions, but all worked together to begin the process of coding the earth, of putting every part of the earth under the radar of largely European or other monolithic territories on earth, putting the world under microscope to make it so that no part of it was left, no stone was left unturned, no people were left misunderstood so that they could be better controlled, mapped, coordinated, so that they could be more easily exploited for political ends, economic ends, for religious ends, mostly conducted by European countries. Now with these three institutions, it would make sense that there would be easily recognizable governing bodies that ruled over easily recognizable nations that didn't have arbitrary borders, but whose borders were essentially legislated into global policy, if I can just use a term like that, they could be more easily understood, more easily handled, more easily exploited. Now, there were a number of other institutions that helped participate in the crystallization of nations and national identity, one of them being education, where education was largely used in order to administer a curriculum to people within a specific nation, or if that nation had colonial interests, that is, they colonized various lands, they would erect schools there in order to convey the national imagination, the national language, culture, values to those people as well, without necessarily wanting to indoctrinate them to give them citizenship because they still wanted to maintain a difference between themselves and people they colonized. So there was a push to try to organize people in accordance with specific values, cultures, languages around the 18th, 19th centuries, just so that they could more easily fit into a labor market. You know, if you have people who can work, if you have people who can all read the same language, it's gonna be a lot easier for them to come together and perform work for somebody else. Whereas previously, that is in centuries past, in a place like France, if you went from town to town, you were gonna confront people with vastly different languages. And it was only with the rise of, mostly with the rise of capitalism and the other, the benefits that it afforded in terms of developments in transport and communication and whatnot, that made it so that people could communicate with others. And the dominant language, the language that would be spoken in the metropole or spoken at the country's center or capital would be the one that would be transmitted to everywhere. And people would then absorb that language, it would become their language, which would make it so much easier to bring people together under this national umbrella. So what does it do to somebody to embrace a nationality? to belong to a nation. Well, Anderson says that it is akin to being part of a religion in that it is going to supply people with explanations for what might happen after death. What is the purpose of life? What are, is the key to a virtuous life? And all of these answers are filtered through the nation's interest where the nation will convince people that it is worth dying for and people will die for their nation. People will because of their love for their nation, people will fight for it. 
people will submit to its codes and culture without actually thinking about it. And its role as a kind of religious institution in our world makes sense for Anderson because the emergence of nations kind of coincided with the fall of religious communities and what he calls the dynastic realm, where in Europe and other places, during the Enlightenment, faith and religion began to decline in favor of faith and science, at least ostensibly. The same thing occurred with dynasties starting to fall. So no longer were nations going to be, or nations or territories going to be run by families that would just hand over their territory, the territory to their, their kin. Instead, it was going to be organized in largely Republican values by people who are going to vote for representative electors, who are going to, who are going to vote for representatives who would represent the people. And this necessitated organizable bodies of people and of land that could comply, that could fall under the rule of these newly elected people that would be in probably in contact with other sovereign nations around them, necessitating an even further, an even more stringent grasp of where the territory ended and where a new one began. Now, with the decline of religious community and with dynastic realms, the nation had to take over the mantle of providing explanations for people as to what they should do in the world, how, what will happen to them after death, what is the point of a good life, and it is to fight for the nation, to fight against possible enemies to the nation, even though people fighting have never met their enemies. They've likely even never met their comrades, yet they are bound together by this ephemeral thing called the nation and their nationality. And one way I like to think about it, when you know, to really think about the absurdity of national identity, is that somebody in Alaska has a lot more in common, that is in the United States, has a lot more in common with someone in the Yukon in Canada than they do with someone from Key West in Florida. Just given the territory alone. I mean, they're vastly different and they're gonna to live totally different lives between somebody in Alaska versus Florida. And they're gonna have a lot more in common with someone who lives in a similar geographic space, lives close to them, and they're gonna have bonds in that way. However, they aren't supposed to be comrades. They aren't supposed to be allies just because there's this imaginary dividing line between them that separates one nation from another. And there are huge implications for this. If people are gonna be uprooted from any kind of tradition and culture in favor of nations, in favor of mapping, that is to replace tradition, to replace culture in favor of these so-called objective forms of organizing people, of just submitting them to a very nebulous, unclear national identity, then it's gonna create alienation. People are not gonna have an attachment to themselves or their land. And they might still be willing to fight for it, but the thing that they're fighting for is not gonna have any kind of strong basis for them to identify with. Over time, that might be the case. But if everybody is submitting to a nation, if everybody belongs to one, it really calls into question the specialness of your own. I mean, everybody is just expected to adopt to this national trend that doesn't, it's not rooted in tradition. Nation, nations are a very new thing, but you're expected to just adapt to it as though it has this very long history, as though it is something that loves you when it can at times very much do the opposite. And yeah, that's essentially what Anderson is on about with regards to 
imagined communities. If there's anything that I forgot or got wrong, I'd, you know, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can leave a comment, I can pin it, people can see how I'm wrong. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, they might get a kick out of it. And yeah, catch you next time, take care.